I think it was Pope John Paul II, in a book that he wrote, that said, when we throw out the word sex, the first thing we think of is action. But the truth is, the first time that sex is used in Scripture, it's used in terms of our identity and who we are. Tonight, we have Dr. Julie Slattery that's going to be speaking about the, the heartfelt pieces of who we are, the health pieces of who we are, and digging into some difficult pieces about sexuality. Now you ask, what does that have to do with the GMHC? And it has everything to do with the GMHC, because here's, here's what's happening. You're in this room because you believe in something, and you believe that the Lord is calling you to something. And if you walk out of here, and you land wherever it is, domestic or international, and your heart isn't intact in the way that the Lord intended it to be, we've failed. And that's our purpose of who we are as a church and the purpose of who we are as believers to know who, who we are meant to be as people and our identity in our Lord. So Julie tonight is going to share, um, I'm, I'm not even going to, I'm going to let you have your, uh, your moment with your title. Um, but Julie runs a ministry called Authentic Intimacy. Um, Julie used to be a, a, a co-host with Focus on the Family and since has left to, to run this ministry. And has done amazing things to dig into extremely difficult topics. Another piece that you might have recognized from um, some of her work, she's written a book called Pulling Back the Shades. It's a book directly combating the movie in the book uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. So extremely excited about Julie being here tonight. Julie, welcome. Well, you didn't mention that we're good friends. So, yeah, and I can't believe you're wearing um, flip-flops at this conference. That's awesome. So, well, uh, great to be with you. This is just such an exciting conference. And didn't you just get the feeling as the worship team was leading us that this is just a little bit of what it'll be to worship together in heaven and to see the one who is the most high, to see him on the throne and we just will want it to go on over and over and over again. Uh, so that's just what a joy to be great, to begin these next few days with worshiping the one who, who this is all about. Well, we're at a medical missions conference. You're at a medical conference probably because you have a heart for people. And you see people in pain and you want to use your gifts and abilities to meet that need. But you're at a medical missions conference because you also have a heart for the Lord. And you believe that he is the great physician. You believe that he's the one that sets captives free, that binds up our wounds, that cares about our broken lives and our broken heart. And so many of us are here. I would say most of us are here because we've had a moment in our lives where we've encountered God in such a way that we have said, I surrender. Lord, send me. Send me. I'm yours. Now, I wonder how many of you who had that moment where God really confronted you and you gave your life to him and you said, send me, did you have a specific place in your mind that you either said or you unspokenly said, but don't send me here? Anybody? <laughs> like, you can send me any in the, anywhere in the world, but not there. And ironically, that's often the place that God ends up sending us, right? Well, for me, it wasn't a place. It was probably more like a topic. And so I wasn't specific enough, maybe in my prayer, not just to say, don't send me to a particular country, but don't send me to talk about a particular topic. And that's the topic that God has given me in this season of ministry to talk about sexuality. And uh, in particular, Will kind of teased my topic a little bit. But tonight, what God has given me to share with you is a missionary's position on sex. So um, now who signs up for this? I mean, who signs up to be the sex lady at a missions conference? <laughs> Julie really got the short straw there. And the topic that God has asked me to share with you today, and really the topic that he's called me to speak on and write on for the last five years, is a difficult calling. It's awkward. I have to have conversations and speak on things that we don't normally speak on in church. And I have to have conversations and speak and write on topics that, frankly, are very offensive to people and hurt people. Uh, because the Word of God 
sometimes is like that sharp two-edged sword that pierces through us and convicts us. And the topic of sexuality often does that. And not only is it difficult for me to have this calling as the Christian sex lady, imagine how difficult it is for my three teenage boys. They dread the question, what does your mom do? So you can be praying for them tonight. But the truth of it is that sexuality represents a tremendous amount of pain in our world. And for those of you who are actively on a mission field, whether that mission field is uh, across the world from here in a remote village or a mission field that's on a college campus here in the USA, you can testify to the fact that sexuality represents brokenness and pain everywhere we go. Let me just read a few statistics that represent some of the brokenness and pain in our own country. 50% of Americans will someday have a sexually transmitted disease in their lifetime. Experts estimate that one in four American women and one in six American men have experienced childhood sexual abuse. Time magazine reported that 25% of women on college campuses will experience unwanted sex. A recent study found that 10% of 12 to 13-year-olds fear that they may be addicted to pornography. The same study found that 20% of 12 to 13-year-olds believe that watching porn is a normal part of life. New York City now recognizes 38 different gender identities. And these statistics, again, are just the tip of the iceberg of the pain and confusion that's in our world around this topic of sexuality. There's brokenness everywhere we look. And as God has called me to minister on these topics related to sexuality, here's what I've learned. That behind every, every question about sex is ultimately a question about God. That every conversation about sexuality, sexual pleasure, sexual identity, sexual brokenness, ultimately has underneath it questions about who God is. Questions about how does God see me? Can he really forgive my sin? Does he really love me? Does he want me to be happy? What does he do with my brokenness? And so while it's difficult to talk about these issues of sexuality, it's a great joy to ultimately get to talk about the truth about who God is. And what I found is that a large reason why we experience so much sexual brokenness in our world is because we don't have a proper understanding of who God is. If we don't understand who God is and his character then that means that our understanding of our sexuality will be off course. So let me give you an example of this. Uh, I had the opportunity a few weeks ago to tour a mission, a special missions program with the Moody Bible Institute, mission, their aviation program. Is anybody here affiliated with that, a graduate of that, your missionary pilot? Nobody? No, they're all off flying somewhere. Uh, but this is a really cool program that tra- trains mission aviators. And one of the ways that they train mission aviators is they train them to be instrument-rated pilots. Now, if you know anything about flying, you know that being an instrument-rated pilot is a really important certification to get. Because the average pilot that just learns to fly a plane will fly the plane based on what they see outside the windows. So they look and they see, okay, I'm this far up above the above the the earth and you know this is my altitude this is my speed and they just make that judgment based on what they perceive in the world and there was a pilot that you might remember had a a really tragic crash about 20 years ago john kennedy jr do you guys remember that john jr how he flew off the coast of the atlantic ocean and he was with his wife and some friends and he was just a casual pilot not instrument rated And he apparently perceived by looking out the windows that he was flying much higher than he actually was. And he ended up crashing into the Atlantic Ocean because of that miscalculation. And the National Board of Transportation said that if John Jr. had been an instrument-rated pilot, he wouldn't have crashed. So what's an instrument-rated pilot? An instrument-rated pilot is one who flies solely based on the instrument panels. Doesn't even need to look out the window but can fly the airplane based on what he or she is seeing in the cockpit. And so when I think about our sexuality and the decisions that we make about our sexuality, the advice that we give other people, the way we perceive what's happening in our world, I have to ask the question, am I an instrument-rated Christian? Because there are two different ways 
to understand the chaos and the questions that we get asked, and even in our own experience, in our own marriages, in our own lives about sexuality. We can either make decisions and make judgments by looking out the cockpit, looking out the windows to discern what's really happening, or we can look at the unchanging truth of God's word. And just like that instrument panel, you can trust it because it's tried and true. It's unchanging. We're told that Jesus' character, that who Jesus is, has never changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that his word is trustworthy. That's just as relevant today as it was when it was first inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so being an instrument-rated Christian means that when we're asked and confronted with issues of sexuality, instead of just kind of taking the pulse of what we perceive around us and even what we feel and what we discern, that we look at the unchanging truth of God's character in his world and of his word. So when I get asked questions, for example, in my job, I get asked all kinds of questions. Uh, I get asked questions uh, by women who are married who will say, well, what's okay in the bedroom for me and my husband to enjoy? I'll get asked questions about, uh, what if I have same-sex attraction? Wouldn't God want me to act those out in a gay marriage? I get asked questions about, why would pornography be wrong? I mean, there's really, it's not doing anything to another person. And I have two choices, just like you, in how I'll answer those questions. Do I look around me in my own perception, or do I look at the unchanging character and word of God? And so my challenge, as I share with you today, what is a missionary's position on sex, is it's the same position that we take on anything that we're asked in this world, that we trust the character of God, that we look to the character of God. And friends, when I see the brokenness, not only in the culture, but when I see the brokenness in our church, in the body of Christ, I realize and I I come to the conclusion that we have made some serious mistakes in our understanding of the character of God and how it applies to our sexuality. Because the brokenness that we talk about in the world is also in this room. Not because I know you, but because I've been ministering in this topic for many, many years now. And I've heard the stories of pastors and missionaries. I've heard the stories of moms and dads. I've heard the stories of men and women whose hearts are committed to God, but who struggle tremendously with issues of sexuality. So in the time that we have this evening, I want to talk about three mistakes that we've made in our understanding of the character of God that are contributing not only to the sexual chaos we see in our world, but the sexual chaos that we see in our own hearts, in our own lives, and in our own churches. So the first mistake that we make is that we do not worship God as the creator of our sexuality. You know, everything around us was created by someone. And if it was created by someone, it means so that person that created it has a purpose in the creation of it. And for us to use it well, logically means we have to understand why was this created. So why did Steve Jobs invent the iPhone? Uh, I was just listening to his biography recently. He was a very interesting man, a brilliant man. But if you, most, most of you have an iPhone, right? You know how to use it. You know what it was intended for. And it works beautifully except for when you crack it like I did earlier this week. Isn't that an awful feeling? It's like, uh, anyway, I digress. Um, but God has created our sexuality. And for us to understand the purpose of why God has created our sexuality, we have to grasp that. And I think a lot of people in the church, a lot of Christians, really don't grasp the fact that God not only has created our sexuality, but he's created our sexuality for a specific purpose. One uh, modern humorist put it this way, to hear many religious people talk, One would think that God created the torso, the head, the legs, and the arms, but that the devil slapped on the genitals. (laughs) And sometimes don't we act that way? You know, we act like the world can talk about sex all they want, but we never talk about within the church. Or we act like, you know, God sees every aspect of our life and he blesses our lives But related to our sexuality, he has really nothing to say about it, or it's just a shameful aspect of who we are. But the reality of it is that God has created each one of us, whether you are single or married, he has created you as a sexual person. 
by his design, by his intention. And what I find is we don't dig deep enough into asking, of, well, why would he do that? Why would he create us as sexual people? Why would he create us in such a way that we have a desire and a drive and that we have bodies that yearn for closeness and vulnerability? Why would he create sexuality in such a way that it has the potential to be one of the most pleasurable things on earth, but it also has the potential to be one of the most devastating things on earth? And we just kind of slap on these, these quick answers like, well, just save sex for marriage. You know, that's all the Bible says about it. Instead of digging deeper and asking the question, what does it mean to worship God as the creator of my sexuality? Why has he designed me as a sexual person? We cannot understand sexuality until we understand the fact that God has created it with a very significant spiritual purpose. That he didn't design sex just so that we could have fun, we could express ourselves, just so that we could have babies. God intentionally created sexuality to be a very spiritual construct. John Piper says it this way. The ultimate reason why we are sexual is to make God more deeply knowable. You might have to just sit and let that sink in for a minute. Have you ever thought about that? The ultimate reason why we are sexual is to make God more deeply knowable. And to unpack what John Piper is getting at here, we have to understand that you will never grasp the purpose of your sexuality until you understand that is, it is, you can never separate it from God's intention of you understanding his covenant love. Let me put it this way. We see in scripture that God created all kinds of physical things that we experience here on earth in order to understand spiritual mysteries. And Jesus, when he taught, he commonly pointed to these physical things so that the people he was teaching could understand spiritual mysteries. And so he would look at shepherds because people understood what a shepherd did and they understood sheep. And he would say, look at the shepherd and look at the sheep and you'll understand how I can shepherd you, how God is a shepherd of his people and how sheep are dumb and they go astray. Or he would talk about vineyards because, again, there were vineyards everywhere. And he would say, I am the vine and you are the branches. And if you abide in me, you bear much fruit. And people would understand that because they could see something physical in order to understand a mystery in the spiritual realm. One of God's greatest creations here on the physical earth to express a spiritual mystery is our sexuality and the covenant love that sexuality draws us into. If you look at the Bible, the the overarching story of the whole Bible and the whole reason that we are sent to proclaim the gospel is the idea of God's unfailing covenant love. And if we read the Bible cover to cover, we will see that God continually uses the example of sexuality and marriage and infidelity to help us understand the depth and the importance of covenant love. I was just uh, in the last few weeks reading the book of Ezekiel. Now, not many of us do studies on Ezekiel, but that was just kind of in my reading plan. And if you read Ezekiel, you will see that God inspired Ezekiel to give this prophecy to Israel that is really graphic in terms of sexual unfaithfulness. I mean, he talks very graphically about this woman uh, who's covered in her own blood and and God finds her and cleanses her and then she goes off and she's unfaithful and describes in quite a bit of detail what that infidelity looks like. God uses a graphic physical example of sexual infidelity to help the nation of Israel understand their covenant infidelity in the spiritual realm. So this is really key when you're looking at what does it look like to worship God with my sexuality? What does it look like for me to recognize that he's the creator of sexuality? We have to understand that God made us as sexual people so that we would understand the concept of covenant love. So what does this practically look like? As I mentioned before, I have three teenage boys. Um, When we go through the teen years, whether you're a boy or a girl, you begin to get distracted. You remember those days? 
Guys, do you remember those days? Maybe you're still in them when you couldn't think about anything other than wanting to be with a girl. And your body was even just intrusive in your thoughts because that drive was so great. Uh, or girls, women, do you remember? Maybe again, you're still there in those days where you would daydream about being somebody's girlfriend, being somebody's wife, wanting to be close, wanting to be known, wanting to be vulnerable. God gives us that drive to draw us into covenant love by his design. In other words, what God is saying to a young man as he enters the teen years is your body is screaming out, it's not good for you to be alone. And that drive is so strong that it can cause a young man to choose to become unselfish, to pursue what it is to serve another person, to lay down his dreams and desires because he desires to be with a woman now. Now, in our world, we see that really gone astray. We see instead of a man being drawn by his sexuality to make a promise and to lay down his life and learn to be unselfish, we see that Satan has provided counterfeits where a man can say, well, I can get those desires met without entering into a covenant relationship. That's not God's design. Let me just tell you, if you are a man or woman, a single man or woman, who is channeling that sexual desire through pornography or through fantasy in order to not enter a covenant relationship that requires sacrifice, can I just tell you that's not the gift of singleness? That God has given you a drive and a desire because he values covenant love. Because when we experience covenant love on here on earth, when we experience what it is to sacrifice for another person, and to say to another person, I will not leave you or forsake you, we begin to understand God's covenant love for us. We begin to understand just a little bit of how passionate he is for us. And the intimacy that he longs for us to experience when we're united with him. And God has created us as sexual people So that within covenant love, we have a tangible way of celebrating the great promise that we make to one another. But we live in a world that wants to celebrate something when it doesn't exist. That wants to express sexually without the covenant. You know, that would kind of be like, well, it'd be kind of like I'm a Cleveland sports fan, okay? Anybody else a Cleveland sports fan? All right. We're still nursing the World Series wounds, right? But um, So I grew up in Akron, Ohio, not far from Cleveland. And if you know anything about Cleveland sports, uh, we don't win very often. <laughs> We're very loyal people because we keep cheering. And uh, the, the city of Cleveland had not won a major sports championship in over 50 years. Uh, the Browns have not won, and they're still not going to win anytime soon. Uh, the Indians hadn't won, even though they had gotten close. And up until recently, the Cavs hadn't won. And the city of Cleveland is such a sports team, such a sports city. They're so loyal with their sports uh, that they just longed for a championship. And I was wondering, you know, before the Cavs won their NBA championship uh, in May, or I think it was May or June, I was wondering, what would it be like if Cleveland got so sick of losing that the mayor of Cleveland just said to everyone, you know what, we're just going to pretend that we won. You know, let's just have a big parade and pretend that we won the Super Bowl or that we won the World Series. Like, how pathetic would that be? That would be even more pathetic than just being, you know, a, a longtime loser. <laughs> but Cleveland, fortunately, didn't sink that low. We waited over 50 years, and the celebration of the Cavs winning the NBA championship, if you're not a sports fan, you don't know what I'm talking about, but just go with me. It was one of the greatest celebrations of a sports team ever. I mean, if you saw the pictures, it was just incredible what happened, because it was a true celebration of something that happened. And here's what we see in our world. We see a world wanting to celebrate sexuality when there's nothing to celebrate because they haven't made a covenant commitment. And Tim Keller says it like this. God has given us the gift of sexuality so that we can do with our bodies what we have promised to do in our hearts. And he's given a married couple who says on their wedding day and every day after, 
I'm for you. I'm not leaving you. I'm here for you. I'm committed to loving you. A sacrament that we can engage in with our bodies that cement and celebrate that. And so God's gift of sexuality, when you take it in this context of covenant, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, here's the great thing about this, too, is that God's design for sexuality actually works. Do you know that? That what the Bible says about reserving sex for covenant, a covenant relationship, medically and psychologically, is the very best thing for us. And when we take sexuality and express it outside of a covenant, it becomes a very destructive thing to us. Uh, My background is I'm a clinical psychologist. And even though my field is a very liberal field, I can tell you that every psychological study that is done with integrity will support God's design for sexuality within covenant. A good example of that is pornography. Time magazine about six months ago, their cover story was how men who used to love pornography now are trying to destroy it. Not because of religious reasons, because pornography is messing with their sex lives. And men who used to promote pornography are saying, I just want to be able to be attracted to a real human being and I can't anymore. And again, everywhere you look in the medical field and the psychological field, it supports the fact that God created sexuality for covenant and worshiping him as a creator of our sexuality means that we exercise it within that. And again, using that analogy or even the airplane, you know, the, the instrument panels of the airplane, if you personally say, God, I want to honor you in my sexuality, I want to worship you as the creator of my sexuality, it means you don't make sexual decisions based on the changing trends of what's happening in our culture. It means you don't even make sexual decisions by looking inward at how I feel and what I experience. It means that you don't look at the latest person that the the world is promoting or even the latest Christian leader because humans can get it wrong. It means that we look at the word of God, we worship the creator of our sexuality, and we will live with integrity in terms of his design. The second mistake that we make related to our sexuality is that we don't believe that God can heal sexual brokenness. We don't run to him with our sexual brokenness. I talked about God's design for sexuality being within covenant and this being a wonderful thing and it drawing men and women into covenant relationship and it being a celebration uh, of our commitments that we make to one another. But the reality of it is every single one of us in this room has experienced some form of sexual brokenness. Why is that? Because we have an enemy who understands the power of holy sexuality and who works overtime to distort that, to taint that, to use something that God created to be a great gift, to become a curse to us. And all of our stories may be different, but every one of us could talk about how sexuality has become a shameful issue, how it's become damaging to us, how it's become hurtful, how it's become confusing. But here's what I see in the church I see in the church that we don't talk very open about the fact that God wants to heal our sexuality. When we have conferences on healing or we have missions conferences, we also ultimately we start thinking about the body, that God wants to heal the body, that God wants to make blind eyes see and he wants to make deaf ears hear and he wants to make cancer filled bodies pure and clean and healthy again. Yeah, that's true, but if you read scripture and you know the heart of God, you know that he says our bodies are wasting away, but our hearts are for eternity, and that when even God heals us physically, it's ultimately so that we know that he can heal our hearts. But so often we talk about God's healing in these safe areas of life, in the physical areas of life, and we never talk about the fact that God came to heal our hearts, including our sexuality. Think about particularly the women that Jesus encountered in the scripture. How many of them had sexual shame and sexual brokenness? 
What was Jesus talking about when he quoted Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 3 and said, I'm the one who came to proclaim good news to the poor and to set the captives free and to bind up the brokenhearted. He was talking about our emotions and our heart and our sexuality. But again, I think a lot of us, we might give lip service to that, but we really don't believe that God can heal sexual abuse, that God can heal a sexual addiction, that God can heal confusion and sexual attraction and gender identity. We don't, we don't know where he is in the midst of that. But I will tell you that I have seen God heal all those things and be concerned and close to people who are struggling with all those things. Let me just tell you about a woman that I met named Angel. And this picture of Angel is at her very lowest. Angel was addicted to crack cocaine for many years. And in order to pay for the drugs, uh, she uh, sold her body in prostitution. And Angel found herself in prison 27 times. And she kept saying to the Lord, God, if you're there, will you save me? And Angel said that, she began as she began praying that God sent her to prison one more time. And it was in prison that Angel met a woman named Becky who shared the love of Jesus with her. Now you think of a woman who, like Angel who's been on drugs and in prostitution for over a decade. You think about the brokenness that is represented in this life. Angel came to know the Lord nine years ago. And I want you just to get a little glimpse of who she is today. I want the women to know, no matter where you are, no matter how dark it is, no matter what you've done, no matter what secrets you think you have to keep because you think that you can't be free from it, that he came to nail that to the cross so that you could be free. No matter what you've done, you don't have to hold on to shame. It was taken years ago when he gave his life and was crucified. It's like Jesus runs through my veins. His word, what it does to my heart, the power, every time I'm in it, every time I read it, every time I speak it out. I want women to know the, the love that he has for them. I remember asking God one time, just let me reach out and touch one of these women. Just let them get a feel, feel of what you've done for me, the feel of how you love me. And I remember I could hear God telling me, that there's a journey that each of us have to take in order to understand what truly God is doing in our life, what He truly feels for us, how He truly just wants to open up the heavens and pour love down on us women down here. And if He would give it, like it wouldn't be respected, it wouldn't be felt, it wouldn't be understood, that they had to want to give over their life to see just the amazingness. If I was asked, what does it look like for five years for me, I would have shortchanged myself because I can't believe what he's doing in the eight that I've been allowing Jesus to be in my heart. He recklessly loves us, and I want every woman out here in this world to know that. That's, that's healing. That's a miracle. Angel now works on the same streets that she used to walk on, uh, witnessing to prostitutes and, and drug addicts just like her, and preaching the good news of Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Many of you are like, amen, that's awesome. Like, I know an angel. I've seen that happen on the mission field. I've seen that happen in someone's life. And you believe that God can heal and redeem that sexuality you believe that God can heal and redeem a prostitute like Angel and completely redeem her life. But if you're really honest, you don't believe that he could do that for you. And I've met so many Christian men and women who again will say, yeah, God is the healer. Amen. Praise the Lord. And they'll even share that with their neighbor. But when I ask them the tough questions in their heart of hearts, they don't believe that God's can, his power is great enough to remove the shame of the mistakes that you've made or the sin you're entangled in. They don't believe that God's healing is great enough and personal enough to go back to sexual wounds and trauma that they've had in their past. And so we limp along in life. 
We limp along believing this is the best it could get. Or God can heal a woman like Angel, but God can't heal someone like me. Or maybe you just believe, I just need to go like to a psychologist and talk things through. And you know, let me tell you that I'm a clinical psychologist. And I understand the power and the help of psychology. But here's what I've learned. Psychology can help people, but only Jesus Christ can heal people. And so my question to you is, do you personally believe, not just for the angels of the world, but for you, that Jesus Christ can heal and redeem the sexual brokenness and sin in your own life? Have you ever asked that question? Because he's able. And I know that there are many missionaries and pastors and teachers in the world who preach the healing of Jesus but are afraid to encounter it in their own lives. And so we have to ask ourselves, what keeps us from bringing our sexual brokenness to the Lord? And again, I know that it exists in this room. I know there's brokenness in marriages in this room. I know that there's, there's sin struggles and there's addictions and there's wounds from the past that feel like they'll never be healed. And I see that there are certain things that keep us from asking God to really bring healing into our lives. And I think there are three particular obstacles that we actually see in a story uh, that happened in the life of Jesus found in John chapter 11. And if you have a Bible, maybe you want to turn to John chapter 11. I'm going to read some portions out of this. Um, But John chapter 11 is the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. I mean, that's an awesome story of healing. God not only heals someone, he literally raises them from the dead. But as we read this story, we see, um, we see some things going on that I think we really can relate to in our own healing journeys. And I want to pull out three things in particular. The first thing I want to pull out is that God doesn't make sense in our pain. And I want to read a couple passages from John chapter 11. And before I do this, I want you to, in your mind... Pretend that you don't know the end of this story. Because you know the end, right? You know that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But for a moment, I want you to pretend that you're watching what Jesus is doing and you don't know the end of what's going to happen here. Okay, it says, um, so a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha. Uh, And the sisters, these were good friends, Mary and Martha were good friends of Jesus, sent word to him, Lord... The one you love is sick. When Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Okay, now remember, you don't know that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Does this make any sense to you? Does it make any sense to you that Jesus gets word that this friend that he loves is dying and he knows that Lazarus is going to die, but he says he's not going to die? Does it make any sense to you that he loves these two sisters and this man, but instead of going to help when he could have, he stayed for two more days? That doesn't make sense to me. Let's skip down in the the, um, passage here in verse 11. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he's going to get better. But Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, guys, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. Does that make any sense? It makes no sense. I mean, it's like Jesus sounds crazy. And then, to, and then Thomas, one of his disciples, said to the rest of them, well, let's go so that we can die with him. I mean, they're just like, well, let's follow him anyway. We're going to go die together. So Jesus gets there, and on his arrival, he finds out that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many people had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in their loss. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. 
So I want you to imagine this. Remember, you don't know that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Martha was deeply wounded that Jesus, who could have saved her brother, didn't come. Wouldn't you have been? But she still has this great profession of faith. Even now, the Lord will give you whatever you ask. But instead of answering her question or her grief, Jesus gets into a theology discussion. And he said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But what about now? And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah and the Son of God who has come into the world. And then we see Jesus encounter the other sister, Mary. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was in Solomon, she just fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And that that Greek word actually means that he was angry. He was in anguish. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how they loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Now, let's stop there for a minute. Do you see all the actions of Jesus there that make absolutely no sense? If this is the God of the universe, why didn't he come to save the one he loved? And then why did he cry when he got there? If he knows, you know, that he's powerful and he knows what's going to happen, why is he moved with emotion? And again, if we stop the story there, Jesus is very confusing to us. And let me tell you, when we are wrestling with sexual brokenness, God is very confusing to us. Where were you, God? We asked the same question the people here were asking. If you could open the eyes of the blind, why were you not there to save the one you loved? If you can open the eyes of the blind, why weren't you there to save a little child from sexual abuse? If you can open the eyes of the blind... Why did you give me an attraction to the same sex and then tell me I can't act that out? God, you make no sense to me. But even though Jesus did not make sense to Mary and Martha, they still trusted him. Do you know why they trusted him? Because they knew he loved them. The whole town knew he loved them. Says it three times in the passage. That's why they trusted him when he didn't make sense. And often, friends, we don't want to go into our own brokenness. And we certainly don't want to address the sexual brokenness in other people because God doesn't make sense in that brokenness. Because we can't explain his action or his inaction. And the reason we can't explain it is because we don't know the end of the story. Now, in this case, in John chapter 11, we get to see the end of the story. We get to see the resurrection. And we go back and we look at the words and the actions of Jesus and we go, now it makes sense. Now I understand what he was saying. I mean, do you guys ever see the movie like The, the Sixth Sense? Do you remember that movie? And if you haven't seen it, it's, it's a crazy movie because at the end it's got this twist that you didn't see coming. And you have to go back and rewatch the whole movie because you're like, the whole movie looks different now. And this is what we see in John chapter 11. And can I tell you, this is what we will see in our own lives when the resurrection comes. We will look back on the action or inaction of God that doesn't make sense today. And we'll see that he always acts with intent and purpose and with love. The second thing we see in this story that relates to our own stories is that our brokenness stinks. So let's keep, at, let's keep reading what happens When Mary reached the place where Jesus, wait, I already read that part. This is, okay, here we go. I'm going to skip down to verse 38. Jesus, once again deeply moved, came to the the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance, and he said, take away the stone. But Lord Martha said, by this time there was a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Okay, so Martha's super practical. Jesus is like, let me see where Lazarus is. And they're about to roll away the stone. And Martha goes, 
Don't roll it away. It's going to stink. He's been dead for four days. His body is decayed. I love in one translation of the scripture, it just says, and Martha said, Lord, it stinketh. (laughs) And here's what I found in addressing my own brokenness and in walking with many people through their brokenness is when God is getting poised to move and poised to heal and poised to enter the place of death in our hearts, we protest. Lord, don't go there. It stinketh. I'm a mess. If I open that tomb, if I confess what's happening, if I go back to the past and have to look at what happened to me, my life will fall apart. It's a mess. How many of you have said that to God in your own life or when he's asked you to walk through the brokenness with someone else? It's messy. But here's the thing. We have a God who specializes in messy and who isn't offended by the stink. But how many of us stay unhealed and broken because we're unwilling to expose the mess and the stink For God to bring healing, we have to be willing to let him enter the place of death so that he can bring new life. And then the last obstacle that we see Jesus overcome that relates to our own brokenness is that we still wear grave clothes. So let me keep reading in the story. Then Jesus said, and I tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God. So they took away the stone and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you for that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I say this for the benefit of my people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his head, and his hands and his feet wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to him, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now, let's just like transport ourselves back in time to when this actually happened. I mean, could you imagine this? Can you imagine this guy walking out like, was he like a zombie? Like, you know, he's all wrapped up like a zombie. And the people were like, can you imagine their response? Of Jesus calling Lazarus forth, the dead man comes out. And I think what Martha said was probably true, that he probably was stinky. At least the grave clothes were still stinky. They smelled. But here's what I want you to get from this visual picture that Jesus gives you. Even though he calls Lazarus forth from the grave, he comes out of the place of death. He still has the trappings of death around him. And I also want you to notice that Jesus doesn't tell Lazarus to take the grave clothes off himself because he can't. He tells others around him to help. And here's what I've seen with sexual brokenness. We roll away the stone. The mess is exposed. Jesus begins to breathe in healing and new life. But it takes a while to get those grave clothes off. And we often need the help of the body of Christ to remove them. It takes time to forgive those who hurt us. It takes time to get rid of the coping skills that we relied on for, for decades. It takes time to kick the temptation of a pornography addiction and to rewire your brain. And you need the body of Christ. But so often, we're not honest about that. And so we don't experience the true healing and resurrection that we see in this story in John chapter 11. As we look at John chapter 11, I know that there's people in this room that are covered with shame, that are shackled by sin, that have wounds that have never seen the light of the healer. And God has called you to proclaim freedom for the captives. But first, he wants to bring you into freedom. Have you asked God to be the redeemer and the healer of your sexuality? And then finally, the third mistake we make is that we do not surrender to God as the Lord of our sexuality. You know, we talk about that word Lord a lot in Christian circles. We have songs about Jesus be the Lord of our life. But do we really understand what the word Lord means? We don't use it in any other context except for in church. But I think often 
when we tell Jesus that he can be our Lord, we're really telling him that he can be our employer. Because uh, your employer has a certain authority in your life. When you go to work, you clock in, you're on your employer's time, you do what your employer asks you to do, you might wear a uniform, uh, you might abstain from things that your workplace doesn't approve of, but then when you leave, you're on your own time, right? They can't call you at home, well maybe they can, depends on your job, and say, hey, we need you right now. But we often treat God, even as missionaries, we treat God as an employer who has a right to speak in a certain areas of our life but not every area of our life. And I found myself very guilty of this. And I found that this area of sexuality for a long time is an area of my life that I didn't completely submit to the Lordship of Christ. I can remember like about 10 years ago, um, my kids were really young at that time. Some of you have really young kids and you know how exhausting that is. Amen. You know, you're taking care of them all day and they want things from you all day and you're patient and kind and loving to them until it's like 8.30 at night and they go to bed uh, and you put them to bed and you do not want to hear from them again until the morning. Uh, And I would tell my kids, I've been nice to you all day, but now I am no longer nice mom. If you get out of your room, I will be mean mom. And that was my attitude, like it was my time. And uh, that also kind of applied to my husband. And, uh, you know, he had other ideas of what we might be doing when the kids went to bed. Uh, And my attitude was, I've been serving all day. I want to be alone. I don't want anybody touching me. Uh, And I got to the point in my marriage where I just was like kind of avoiding intimacy. It was a very difficult area of our marriage for a lot of reasons. There's some brokenness that the Lord just needed to bring healing to. And so I was avoiding it. And I was flat out tired. Um, I can just remember, you know, I'd be getting ready for bed after putting the kids down. And my husband would, like, get a glimpse. And I'd be like, no, I'm just changing into my pajamas. Leave me alone. And he started changing in the bathroom. and Or my husband would say, honey, you look tired. Can I give you a back rub? I'd be like, what kind of back rub? <laughs> I want it in writing. So, but I was a very spiritual woman, so at 8.30 when the kids went to bed, I would have my quiet time. And I'd make my tea, and I'd have my Bible. And again, about 10 years ago, the Lord began to really touch my heart and just burden my heart to be set apart for Him. And I can remember after reading my Bible in my quiet time, just saying to the Lord, God, I want to love you. I want to serve you. And then I heard the Lord say to me, go up and initiate sex with your husband. And I said, Lord, I want to love you. (laughs) I'm just so into Leviticus, I need to stay here. And my attitude at that time was really, God, you can send me to India, but do not send me upstairs to my husband. (laughs) And so uh, I heeded that strong voice of the Holy Spirit, and I went upstairs. I peeked into our bedroom, and I said, hey, do you know why I'm here? And my husband said, oh, yeah, I know why you're here. And I said, no, it's the weirdest thing. I was doing my quiet time, and I was praying And I just sensed God telling me to come up and initiate with you. He said, no kidding. I was doing my quiet time and I was praying and I was asking God to tell you that. (laughs) And I have found that that's happened often during my quiet time in recent years. And I don't think it's just because my husband's praying. I really believe it's because this was an area of my heart that I hadn't surrendered to God. And I had surrendered a lot of my life to him. But this is an area that, even though it was unspoken, I held on to. And I didn't invite him into healing. I wasn't obedient. I didn't seek truth. 
and I didn't surrender. And when I was saying to the Lord, God, send me, I want to be yours. Instead of first sending me, he said, there's a piece of your life you first need to surrender. You know, Hudson Taylor said, if Jesus is not Lord of all, then he is not Lord of all. Or, I'm sorry, let me say it again. Hudson Taylor said it better. If Jesus, <laughs> yeah. if Jesus is not Lord of all, then he is not Lord at all. And boy, is that true. And the Lord was confronting me with that. And some of you are here and you're saying to God, I will go wherever you send me. And God is responding to you. If you really love me, surrender this area of sexuality to me. Pursue me as your healer. Stand on the truth that I ask you to stand on, even if it's unpopular in our world. Surrender your addiction to me. Surrender that secret to me. Invite me to be your healer and your redeemer. You know, somehow we've bought into the lie that we can serve God with portions and percentages of our life. And this is an area that we hold back. But here's what God has taught me. The greatest qualification to being used mightily with, with for God, to be anointed by his spirit, is 100% surrender in every area of life. I mean, your skills as a physician or a PA or whatever medical training you have or a psychologist, that's good. But really, God's not going to use that. He's going to pour through a heart that is 100% surrendered to him. Are you willing to surrender this area of your sexuality to him? Because Jesus has not primarily commissioned us to heal the body. He has commissioned us to preach the good news of Jesus and to make disciples of all nations. And even though we might be skilled medically, we might be educated, let's not forget that we hold the greatest truth, the most powerful truth in the world, the truth that Jesus died to save sinners and to redeem lives, that every single one of us are broken and are only here today because of the redemption that he's done in our own souls. We have a good news, a gospel to preach, that God, God's truth sets captives free. It doesn't bring bondage. It brings freedom. We have a truth that Jesus can heal anything, that he can redeem any life. But we compromise our ability to communicate that truth when we haven't experienced it personally, when we're not walking it out with integrity. So let me just close by asking you three very personal questions. Do you worship God as the creator of your sexuality? Do you run to him as the healer and redeemer of your sexuality? And have you surrendered to him as the Lord of your sexuality? Let's pray. Lord God, we recognize that this great gift of sexuality that you created that teaches us about your covenant love has been so tarnished by the enemy that our enemy is so aggressively using it to cause pain and that our enemy is also using it to disqualify us as your servants and as your surrendered messengers. And so, Lord, I ask that you would take that ground back tonight in this place. That you would show each man and woman who needs to hear this truth that you are able. That you don't pour shame on us, but you offer forgiveness and redemption. And that your healing isn't just partial, but it's complete. Your redemption isn't just for heaven, it's for today. And Lord, we just ask for healing. We ask for healing first in this place and in our own lives. And we ask for healing in the nations. We ask for the end of sex slavery. We ask for the end of pornography. We ask for the end of just sleeping around and sexually transmitted diseases and pregnancies that of 13-year-olds and 12-year-olds. And we ask for the end of sexual abuse in families. But, Lord, it must first begin with us. And so I pray that you would do that work of revival in our hearts so that you could commission us with a truth that can change the world. 
And Lord, we ask all these things because we know that you are able to do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I, uh, I'm going to be around the next few days. We've got a booth out in the exhibit hall, so I'd love to connect with some of you, uh, answer any questions you have. Um, but for tonight, just thanks for being here, and God bless you, and we'll see you tomorrow morning.